Hello listeners, my name is Alexandria Montoya. I'm a PGY3 internal medicine doctor here to introduce this episode of Care Everywhere, brought to you by the University of Utah Internal Medicine Residency Program. In this episode, we will be discussing how to approach contraception as a well-seasoned or budding PCP. A primary care doctor is tasked with following patients' health throughout various phases of life, and part of this includes comprehensive sexual health. The key to approaching sexual health requires shared decision-making, consideration of comorbid conditions, and an understanding of the unique social determinants of health. It is the role of a PCP to assess and understand individual reproductive plans and to provide appropriate options for contraception to those wishing to avoid pregnancy. Additionally, we will address an approach to contraceptive failure and emergency contraception, both equally important topics to understand and address. The values and priorities of each individual vary based on their unique backgrounds and perspectives, and it is critical to provide comprehensive reproductive care to allow for informed decision-making that best fits their reproductive goals and desires. Contraception is not a new concept, but why is it important? A study from 2008 to 2011 found that 45% of pregnancies in the United States were unintended or mistimed. Pregnancy itself remains a risk to a patient's health, with a maternal mortality in a 2020 study being as high as 23.8 deaths per 100,000 in the United States, and a three times higher risk of death in black individuals. Prescribing or recommendation of contraception is only the beginning. It is a critical to counsel on optimal use of each type of contraception and estimated failure rates with perfect and suboptimal use. Before diving in, I will present you with a case. Use this case to guide your listening throughout the podcast and at the end consider how you might counsel this patient. A 34-year-old female who's 10 days postpartum presents for evaluation. She is recovering well and has decided that she is not interested in having any more children. Her pregnancy was complicated by a right lower extremity DVT for which she is currently on Lovenox. She reports no other prior history of VTE outside of pregnancy. Prior to her pregnancy, she was using a combined OCP but stopped a year prior to conceiving her most recent child. She is currently breastfeeding. Prior to her pregnancy, she experienced very heavy periods which were better controlled while on OCPs. She is currently smoking a half pack per day, reduced from her prior one pack per day. She plans to resume sexual activity within the next few months and has sex with both men and women. She has never had an STI and gets STI checks regularly, no history of abnormal pap smears. She has no personal history of breast cancer but reports that her grandmother had breast cancer at age 70. I hope you enjoy the remainder of the podcast and know that my colleagues will do an excellent job in explaining contraception. Hey everybody, this is John McCarran, a second year internal medicine resident. Today I'll be briefly discussing the different types of contraception available to patients from barrier protection to oral medications to surgical options. At the end of the discussion, I'll summarize the estimated efficacies associated with both perfect and typical use. I do want to mention first that most of the methods out there are geared towards patients with a uterus, and to my knowledge, there aren't any FDA-approved options for patients with male anatomy outside of condoms and vasectomies. This could be a topic for an entire podcast in itself, and hopefully this will change in the next few years. But for now, let's focus on what's available today. First, let's break down the different categories. We can broadly think of contraception as hormonal and non-hormonal. 
Hormonal options can be further categorized as combined estrogen, progesterone, and progesterone only. Non-hormonal methods range from barrier protection, spermicides, timed intercourse, and IUDs. Let's chat about combined hormonal options first, most notably pills, patches, and rings. Combined contraceptives refer to a formulation containing an estrogen, typically ethanol estradiol, and a progestin. The estrogen helps to suppress ovulation, but mainly works to reduce bleeding and stabilize the endometrium from shedding. Pill forms are taken routinely on a 21 to 7 day cycle, resulting in withdrawal bleeding during the final week. They can also be taken in an extended and continuous use fashion that can be slightly more effective in suppressing ovulation and may induce amenorrhea. A newer, naturally occurring estrogen called estetrol has been shown in early studies to demonstrate more tissue selectivity and in theory has less effects on breast and vascular tissue. Transdermal patches are another combined hormonal option and are typically changed weekly for three consecutive weeks, followed by an off week for withdrawal bleeding. However, they are contraindicated in patients with BMI greater than 30 due to a possible increased risk for venous thromboembolism. Vaginal rings are another common combined hormonal method divided into monthly and annual use. The monthly ring is exchanged every four weeks and has the option for withdrawal bleeding by leaving it out for seven days before replacing. The annual ring is used on a 21 to 7 day cycle and can be reinserted over the course of an entire year. Again, this method is only approved for patients with a BMI under 29. Next, let's discuss progestin-only methods, mainly orals, injectables, implants, and IUDs. These usually result in lighter bleeding in a more unpredictable pattern. Progestin pills and levonorgestrel IUDs work by affecting the endometrium and cervical mucus while leaving the ovulatory cycle intact. Norethindrone-containing pills need to be taken at or near the same time every day due to the short half-life, while drospirinone pills have a longer 24-hour dosing window due to the longer half-life. Injectable methods, i.e. the medroxyprogesterone shot, are given IM or sub-Q every 11 to 13 weeks. With proper education in clinic, patients can self-administer the sub-Q version with a technique similar to insulin or newer GLP-1s. Barrier protection remains popular for its ease and convenience and works by physically preventing sperm from accessing the ovum. These include condoms, vaginal sponges, diaphragms, and cervical caps, with condoms being the only method that can also protect against sexually transmitted infections. The pull-out method, or medically speaking, coitus interruptus, also works by preventing the union between the spermatocyte and ovum, although boasts a higher failure rate. However, it's important for physicians to acknowledge this less-than-ideal method, as 65% of patients reported using this method to prevent pregnancy at one point in time. pH-modulating gels are another recently approved option that render sperm ineffective, although must be used within 60 minutes of intercourse and are not effective afterwards. These tend to be less popular with patients due to the associated itching and burning. All right, that takes care of the shorter-acting options. Let's move to longer-acting methods and the growing popularity of intrauterine devices. For IUDs, we have the levonorgestrel or copper-containing options. Levonorgestrel IUDs are approved for several years, with the Mirena IUD lasting up to eight years before exchange is necessary. Once inserted into the uterine cavity, they help prevent pregnancy by thickening cervical mucus and thinning the endometrial cavity, effectively blocking sperm and slowing tubal motility. These effects are more localized than oral contraceptives 
and about 20% of patients report amenorrhea by the one-year mark. Copper IUDs, on the other hand, which work by creating a sterile and inhospitable environment for sperm in the uterus, are approved for about 10 to 20 years. These are typically less popular than their hormonal counterparts due to the increased bleeding or cramping during menstruation. Another long-acting method is subdermal levonorgestrel implant, which is approved for about three years before replacement and works mainly by suppressing ovulation. Finally, we have our surgical options for permanent sterilization in patients who are certain they do not desire fertility. Tubal ligation involves bilateral salpingectomy or removal of the fallopian tubes, and it's important to mention to the patient that this is absolutely irreversible. On the other side, vasectomies involve bilateral transection of the vas deferens and is not entirely effective until about 12 weeks after the procedure to achieve complete remission of the sperm. All right, that was a lot of info. Let's summarize and wrap things up by going over efficacy all in one section so you can pause and rewind if you need to. We'll list both typical use and perfect use for unplanned pregnancies in the first year to help with patient counseling. The overall winner, unsurprisingly, is abstinence at 100%, but probably won't be a very popular method in your clinic. The next best option is the hormonal IUD in terms of efficacy or the subdermal implant, each coming in at 0.1% unplanned pregnancy in the first year of use. This is followed in a close second by the copper IUD at 0.8%. Sterilization techniques are also highly effective, with 0.5 and 0.15% for tubal ligation and vasectomy, respectively. The pill, patch, and vaginal rings each have an unplanned pregnancy rate of about 7% with typical use and decreasing the 0.3% with perfect use while the medroxyprogesterone injection is slightly better at 4% and 0.2%. Condoms come in at 13% and 2%, sponges at 27% and 20%, diaphragms are 17% and 16%, and cervical caps are 32% and 26%. Coitus interruptus, or withdrawal, results in unplanned pregnancy within a year in about 20% of cases with typical use, and that drops to 4% with perfect use. All right, that was a lot to digest. Let's hear from Dr. Josh White about the risks associated with contraception. Okay, so next I'll talk about the risks associated with contraceptive use. Um, First is the risk of estrogen-containing contraceptives and their associated cardiovascular risk. Um, So we do know that combined hormonal contraceptives that contain estrogen do have a, you know, a small but a not insignificant risk of venous thromboembolism. This increases with uh, increasing age, obesity, high blood pressure, and tobacco use, um, and continues while the patient is on the contraceptive, and takes about 30 days to return to baseline after the contraception is discontinued. And despite some early evidence that the transdermal patch had a slightly higher risk of thromboembolism uh, than other methods of combined hormonal contraceptives, this has not really been proven on subsequent studies. Um, And and as a result, you know, the risk of thromboembolism is likely the same across all methods of contraception that contain estrogen. And the risk of other cardiovascular comorbidities such as heart disease or strokes is also increased in patients taking um, estrogen-containing contraceptive. However, this is really um, only applicable to patients 
age 35 and greater and increased with other risk factors like tobacco use and hypertension. And next is the risk of breast cancer with estrogen-containing contraceptive methods. And you know, while there was some early evidence that using combined contraceptives increases the risk for breast cancer, this really hasn't been demonstrated on subsequent studies, uh, including for high-risk patients such as those with BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. So as a result, there appears to be little to no increased risk of breast cancer for modern use of estrogen-containing contraceptive methods using contemporary dosing. Next, I'll talk about the risk of progestin-only contraceptive methods. The risk of these methods it really depends on the specific type of contraceptive method used, um, but notably all of these methods do not convey an increased risk of thromboembolism or other cardiovascular disease um, as seen with estrogen-containing methods. Three common progestin-only methods are the injectable progestins, the subdermal implant, and the 11 orgestral IUD. The injectable depot can result in weight gain, um, and then in rare cases can result in some local complications such as infection or hematoma. The subdermal implants and the 11 orgestral IUD are both associated with irregular bleeding. The bleeding from the IUD usually improves over time, whereas the irregular bleeding from the implant is more likely to persist. Next is the risk of IUDs, which encompasses the 11 orgestral IUD and the copper IUD. Both these can tend to cause cramping, uh, typically in the first several months, um, although this is generally responsive to you know, conservative measures like uh, NSAIDs. There is also a very small increased risk of pelvic inflammatory disease in the first month after the IUD is placed, although there is no evidence that prophylactic antibiotics actually decrease in this risk, and as such, they are generally not recommended. In very rare instances, inserting the IUD can actually damage the uterus and cause perforation, although again, this is very rare with an instance of about um, 0.01%. And the copper IUD specifically tends to cause heavy menses. And lastly, I'll talk about the risks to the pregnancy if the patient becomes pregnant while using different contraceptive methods. Um, so thankfully, there's no evidence that exposure to any of the combined hormonal contraceptive methods or the subdermal implant causes any sort of abnormalities. So no fetal abnormalities, spontaneous miscarriage, preterm delivery, birth defects, or, or other pregnancy-related or fetal problems. However, there is an increased risk for patients who become pregnant while using an IUD. So these patients have an increased risk for ectopic pregnancy, other pregnancy-related complications, uh, including spontaneous miscarriage and preterm rupture of membranes. So as a result, any patient who becomes pregnant while on an IUD should be urgently seen by an OB-GYN provider. Contraception selection and management. It's important to remember that contraception selection should be done with a shared decision-making approach. Time should be taken to understand a patient's reproductive goals, values, and life experiences. This includes a patient's cultural, racial, religious, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Make time to have open conversations with your patient working to address prior myths or misconceptions they may have. It's also important to make an effort to understand life circumstances that may affect the patient's use of the contraception. For example, those with busy or inconsistent work schedules may have a difficult time taking oral contraceptives daily at the same time. Keep in mind, though, that patients have a right to their contraceptive preference, which includes using no contraception at all. 
Let's talk through some categories you might find your patients falling into. The first being those with medical comorbidities. Patients with medical comorbidities should receive contraceptive counseling. For example, those patients who are taking oral retinoids, ACE inhibitors, or warfarin. These conversations are increasingly important with patients in whom pregnancy would compromise their health. By having these conversations in advance, necessary planning can take place prior to pregnancy and prevent harm to the patient. Another category of patients includes those who are breastfeeding or in the postpartum period. Consideration of time from delivery is important for choosing contraception. For example, estrogen-containing methods need to be delayed at least 21 days post-delivery. Additionally, patients at high risk for venous thromboembolism should delay estrogen-containing methods for six weeks post-delivery. However, progestin-only methods can be used safely immediately following delivery. In the same way, IUDs can also be placed immediately after delivery, which is both safe and effective for breastfeeding mothers. Another important part to address is menstrual changes and other side effects that can occur with contraception. Counseling on menstrual changes are important as some patients may prefer regular menses, while others may prefer no menses at all. Make sure to counsel your patient on the side effects they could experience once they begin contraception. Another important category is women desiring future pregnancy. Most contraception allows for the rapid return to fertility upon discontinuation, with the exception of the depomidroxyprogesterone acetate injection, which delays fertility on average 10 months after the last injection. Additionally, patients desiring permanent sterilization is another important conversation to have. Consideration for those who want to permanently avoid pregnancy is important, while also keeping in mind that there's no minimum age for this. All patients should be counseled on this being a permanent procedure. Lastly, monitoring the patient's use of contraception is important. It's reasonable to follow up with patients three to six months after beginning contraception. Improved adherence can result from prescribing multiple months supply at a time. And lastly, indications for a referral to OBGYN includes medical complexity, request for permanent sterilization, or placement of an IUD or implant in the situation that the PCP is not trained to do so. Now that we've reviewed the options for contraceptives and the best way to counsel our patients on how to choose, let's review how we can address contraceptive failure as providers. Anyone who is sexually active is at risk of pregnancy, regardless of contraceptive use. Data shows that there is an association between the frequency of unintentional or mistimed pregnancies and level of health disparity a population faces. Unintentional or mistimed pregnancies occur more often in people of color and those that live below the federal poverty line, which appears to be driven by unequal socioeconomic factors contributing to lack of healthcare access and contraceptive care. In the event that a patient experiences an unplanned or mistimed pregnancy, clinicians should ideally provide comprehensive counseling on pregnancy options. This includes both medication and surgical abortion, as well as parenting and adoption plan options. However, the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization removed many federal protections for abortion care, functionally rendering abortion illegal in much of the country. Some jurisdictions in particular may even place restrictions on what physicians can advise 
lies regarding abortion care. This increasingly limited access to abortion care renders it even more essential that clinicians provide comprehensive and patient-centered contraceptive counseling. With these recent federal judicial decisions, access to abortion is now largely determined by the patient's state of residence, and patients in certain states may be entirely unable to access abortion care, including mail-order options. These laws are changing rapidly, and clinicians caring for pregnancy-capable patients should remain up-to-date on the laws in their area to best serve their patients. Ultimately, the primary care setting may be the first and only point of contact for someone with an unintended pregnancy seeking abortion care. Providers can help their patient by understanding legal access options for their patient in their state and region as access may be limited and the fluctuating federal judicial decisions may heavily impact their options. Hi, this is Alex Montoya again. Let's revisit the case presented at the beginning of our presentation. We had a 34-year-old female 10 days postpartum with her pregnancy complicated by DVT. She is currently smoking and breastfeeding. Her risk factors for VTE include current VTE, recent pregnancy, and she is nearing the age of 35 and a smoker. This limits her to non-estrogen-containing methods of contraception. Additionally, she states that she is not interested in having any more children, which may lead to counseling on more long-lasting forms of contraceptives such as surgical sterilization versus AIUD. She has a history of menorrhagia, so a copper IUD may not be her best option as heavy periods is a known side effect. She expressed concerns regarding a family history of breast cancer and a grandmother at age 70. Given her grandmother's advanced age at diagnosis and no other personal or family history, her overall risk for breast cancer remains similar to other women but may be slightly increased by her smoking history. It is unlikely that starting a progesterone-only form of birth control would increase her risk significantly, and she should engage in routine breast cancer screening when appropriate. Thank you so much for your attention, and thanks for listening. I hope you now feel confident and empowered in having discussions regarding contraceptive counseling and prescribing with your patients. Have a great day.